I don't know where you are this morning in your journey. Some of you have been Christians for a long time, some for less. Some of you are here and maybe you've never surrendered yourself to Jesus. Maybe you've even been around church your whole life. But you've never, you've never once said, I give it all to you, Lord. Some of you, maybe you've said that and then, you know, the world kind of got you off track and maybe this morning you need to say it again. Maybe you're here this morning and you're holding on to something that God wants you to give him. And I found that whenever God takes something from us, he replaces it with something better, amen? This morning I want to talk about Christian maturity. I was going to title this message, The Pilgrimage, you can take your pick. The point is that we are all in this life and time is moving, it doesn't wait for us. And so what should the Christian life look like? Once we're saved, once we trust in Jesus, we begin the lifelong process of sanctification, which can feel overwhelming if we view others as perfect, if we're always comparing ourselves. And so sensitive to this in the scripture we're going to look at this morning, Paul assured his readers that he was still a work in progress. You see, maturing faith is grounded in understanding three things, that we are called by God that we are kept by Christ, and that we can persevere in the strength of Scripture's promises. I read, uh, read a lot of stuff. I listen to podcasts and audiobooks, and I'm always reading. And so most of the time, information comes from, from all over. But full disclosure, um, a lot of this material came from a teaching by Alistair Begg, who I love to listen to. Truthful Life is his podcast. It helps that after 30 years in the U.S., he still sounds as Scottish as ever. And so the best you're going to get from me is park the car in the yard. But uh, seriously, as pastors and teachers, I think we stand on the shoulders of giants, and Alice is a giant. And we talked last week about being lifelong learners, which means we're on a journey, a progressive journey. That means we ought to make progress. Doesn't mean we don't get delayed off track. Doesn't mean we don't fall down. But that means we get up and we keep going. And so this sermon will lay the groundwork for our walks. And so that's where we are this morning. And we're in no rush if it becomes part two or part three. We're okay with giving the room, room for the Spirit. Amen. Well, let's pray so we can get through uh, the service. Lord, I pray now that you move me aside. Father, we come to you and we pray that we might hear your voice through your word, the Bible, by your Holy Spirit's power and for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, straining toward the goal, which is how the title of this chapter starts, sounds exhausting, doesn't it? Straining? I don't want to strain toward anything, really. I know Nate is probably looking at me like you lazy. But straining towards the goal sounds exhausting. And some of you may be saying, Pastor Brian, all I do is strain myself, and I'm discouraged, and I'm dispirited. And I say that this message is for you. Now, the beginning of, of Philippians chapter 3 has Paul listing his credentials. Before he talks about what we're going to talk about, he kind of goes through who he is. And that's important because he's trying to lay the groundwork. He's trying to say, look, just in case... Any of you are going to boast about who you are and what you did. Let me tell you who I am. And then he lists his pedigree. Impeccable. 
He lists his qualifications above reproach. And then he says this. He says, but all those things, everything I've, I've spent my whole life trying to build up to, I count it all garbage compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus and being found in him. So now with that said, he moves on to this practical Christian living, and we're going to be in Philippians 3, verse 12 through 17. If you want to take a minute and turn there, if you find it in the church Bible, tell us where it is. 1176. Philippians 3, 12 through 17. And Paul writes, writes right away, he says this, Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, So first he kind of lines up all the things he's done and who he is. And then he says, compared to knowing Christ, that's all garbage. Throw that away. And then he's going to talk about what it means to live as a Christian. And he's going to say, make no mistake. I'm on the same journey you are. And he's going to ground it all. And we're going to see that. So verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect. Paul's saying on this journey, he, even he has not arrived. If anyone would have arrived, we would think it would have been Paul. But he says this, because come, you know, we, we could stop there. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect. And some of us look at others and we get discouraged and we say, if that's what being a Christian is, I don't even know if, if I want to wear the uniform. I don't even know if I, want, if I can be in the club. Because that, that person, I mean, they got it all together. And Paul says this, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Therein lies both the how and the why. It's the how we do it and the why we do it. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had, has made me his own. If you don't recognize the truth that you belong to Christ, none of this stuff's going to make sense. That you belong to him. That he pursues you. That he loves you when you think you're the most unlovable. You know, I think of this as a parent. And when your kids are doing things that they shouldn't do or they're in trouble, what happens to your expression of love? I mean, yeah, I I know you get frustrated, but usually what happens? You have to react to that. So you have to give them more love. You have to give them more attention. You have to do more because you love them and you want to help them. You don't love them less because they make mistakes. And we're humans and our love doesn't even compare to the perfect love of God. And yet somehow the enemies convince us if we screw up that God doesn't love us or that he loves us less. Or that he must love that Christian so much more than he loves me because I'm a mess. But that's not the gospel. That's a false gospel. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. We're going to go slow through this because there's a room full of people that are caught up that can't forget what lies behind. You can't forget about yesterday. You can't forget about 10, 20 years ago. You're holding on to things you did a lifetime ago. And Christ has forgiven you, and you know that, but you haven't forgiven yourself. You're holding on to it. And maybe you come to the altar, or you you have a moment, and it's emotional, and you give it to Jesus, and you make sure on the way out that door, you pick it up again. 
Some of you think you deserve to carry the burden. I know I did for a long time. I thought, you know, people used to tell me, just pray to God in the middle of my addiction. I'm like, there's little kids that have like cancer. I've had every opportunity in the world. I've squandered it by my own choices. If I, if I was me praying to God, listening to my prayers, I would say, kick rocks. Get out of here. And I told that to a friend of mine. I said, well, who cares what you think? Who cares what you think? That's not the truth of the gospel. God doesn't love you because you love you, because you're lovable. God loves you despite yourself. If you believe that, that'll change your life. Because until you forget what lies behind, it's very hard to strain forward to what lies ahead. Because the enemy just keeps telling you about yesterday, about yesterday, about yesterday. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the examples you have in us. It is with this matter of spiritual maturity that Paul is concerned in these verses. That's why in verse 15 he actually uses the word mature. And he says, it it is all of us who are mature who should take a view of such things. You're not expected, you know, I, I had a friend that's, that said before that he's known people that have been Christians for 30, 40 years, and he's no, known people that have been Christians for like one year, 30 times over. They've never changed. They've never matured. They're angry. They're, they're, they're mean, spirited. They don't have peace about them. And they've been going to church for 30 years. J.B. Phillips says this, all who are spiritually adult should set ourselves on this sort of ambition. So if I am a mature individual, there are certain characteristics or dimensions to my life and my walk with God. And he refers to those things, a little paragraph immediately above verse 15, which comprises 12 through 14. Now we know Paul's Christian beginnings and his experience take us to the Damascus Road. Paul's Initial realization at his conversion experience is this. And if you don't realize this, if your conversion experience didn't involve this, this conscious understanding, stop and consider it. Paul's conversion experience, and I submit to you all conversion experiences, Paul had a recollection immediately that he was unworthy of God, that he was unfit for heaven, and that he was unable to do anything about it. You see, what made it so amazing was the fact that despite he knew that true of himself, he recognized that Jesus had sought him out. Do you recognize that Jesus has sought you out despite you? Jesus had sought him, Jesus had humbled him, and Jesus had saved him. And that's always the experience of a genuine Christian. Jesus has sought you out. Jesus should humble you. It's no longer about the old stuff, the stuff the world looks at. Those people are no happier anyway. I think it's John Newton who said there are only two things necessary to be known for salvation. One is that I am a great sinner, unworthy of God, unfit for heaven, and unable to rectify my circumstances. And the other is that is Christ is a great Savior and holy able. 
He is the one who searches us out. He is this one who humbles us. He's the one who saves us. And it is in this that we make the first baby steps along the journey of Christian living. Now, by the time that Paul's writing to the church of Philippi, he's gone down that road some way, right? He's affirmed his commitment to Christ. He says in verse 10 and 11, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in sufferings, becoming like him in death, and so somehow to attain, to attain the resurrection of the dead. Paul's saying, I want to identify with Christ in every way. I want to walk with him. I want to be found in him. It's a staggering statement. It's a quite amazing affirmation, quite amazing aspiration to say, I want to know Christ, not only personally, but progressively. I want to know him with passionate commitment. I want my knowledge of him. You know, if you hang around with somebody long enough, you start to be like them. That's what Paul's saying more than anything else. Some of us, we want people to see Jesus in us, and we think that just because we know stuff about Jesus, that that's going to transfer. But it's not. A.W. Tozer said, the devil is a better theologian than any of us, and is the devil still. Now, if you think about that for a moment, imagine you're in the company of, of an individual making this kind of a statement. There's potential for discouragement. Now, Alistair used an illustration, and it's a baseball illustration. He had his own, but I'm going to make this my own for us. Because as you know, like Alistair, I know nothing about baseball. Not only could I not tell you who won the World Series last year, I don't even know who played in the World Series last year. I, I, okay. But actually, that serves my purpose well, the fact that I know very little. So let's suppose you invite me to play on your baseball team. And this is all fair warning. If we ever have like a softball game or a softball team again and you pick me, you know up front, okay? So you give me all the necessary equipment. You put me in your rotation. And in order to encourage me, you send me up right behind Jamie, who is quite the athlete, I'm told. Of course, he's the only one who tells me, but I'm told he's... (laughs) I'm told he was pretty good at baseball. And so we put Jamie up there, and he stands up, and he smacks the ball out of the arena, grand slam, and then it's me. Now I'm up. I don't even know how to hold the bat. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't even know what to do. And the fact that Jamie went in front of me, he was so good and so effective, it makes me feel like sneaking out. Because he was so good, and I knew that I was going to be so bad that I'd rather not do anything at all then have people find out how miserable I am trying to stand and hit a baseball. It's this spirit of Abraham's captured in chariots of fire after the fictitious race with Eric Liddell because Abraham's never raced Liddell in his life, but the Hollywood made a race to dramatize it. And after he races Liddell and they, and they shot the scene in the rugby stadium down to Edinburgh, and after he races and he loses, he sits down, if you recall the film, and, and he's up in the stands all by himself and he's sulking. And this lady friend appears to him in the stadium. She works her way along the chairs and she sits down beside him. He doesn't say anything. And eventually he breaks the silence and he says, if I can't win, I won't run. To which she replies, if you don't run, you can't win. And as it is in the race of the Christian life, it's possible for some of us to feel ourselves to just be on the starting blocks 
to just getting going and to be surrounded by the kind of individual who makes these dramatic statements about who they are and what they're doing and all their successes. Paul's not doing that. But the aspiring element in it is such that for the pilgrim, for the early pilgrim, for those just starting out, they might be tempted to say, if that's what Christianity looks like, I, 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 I got no shot at that. I'm never going to be like that guy. And if that's how you really live for Christ, and if that's what you're supposed to know, I'm not even sure I'm a Christian at all because I haven't got any of those thoughts and I can't make those statements. Now that you see is why Paul follows up verses 10 and 11 with verse 12. That's why he probably says, now listen. Whether he dictated it to a secretary or whether he said, he says, now listen, just so you know. He's going to say, just in case these readers, as I, as I list these things, just in case they're thinking, I'm saying I've attained this, that I've arrived. I have to make it very clear. Before we go any further, write this down. Not that I have already obtained all of this. Not that I am already perfect. In other words, as a wise pastor, thinking pastorally with his heart and not wanting to lead people astray, Paul says, I'm a pilgrim too. I'm still also in process. I'm still on the journey, and I have plenty of ground to cover. Now, really, that's the responsibility of Christian leadership because the danger in Christian leadership... The danger in being a pastor or teacher is that we can so set before people these idealistic standards to make them believe that we're actually living them. And then we make the disparity from real life to this this fake life so great to our listeners and ourselves that everyone gets discouraged and we're deluding ourselves and we're deluding them. This comes across very clearly in C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves. As he writes about these four areas of love, affection and friendship, and eros and charity, he draws it all to a close, and in a wonderful statement of helpful honesty, he says this, And with this, where a better book would begin, mine must end. I dare not proceed. God knows, not I, whether I have ever tasted this love. He's been describing this experience all along and he seems to have such a handle, such an understanding and he's able to express it beautifully and yet he says, I'm not even sure that I've actually tasted myself what I'm writing to you about. And then listen to this. He says, those like myself whose imagination far exceeds their obedience are subject to a just penalty. We easily imagine conditions far higher than any we have really reached if we describe what we have imagined, we may make others and may make ourselves believe that we have really been there. Understand what I'm saying there? Do you think that because you taught it, you did it? Do you think that because you, you understand it, you're living it? Do we think that because when we write it on a wall or stick it on our wallet or quote it in the car or announce it to people around us that it's actually our real experience when in point of fact it might be our imagination? Are we really like Paul desiring to be found with Christ and in Christ progressively? What do you dream about? Maybe if you dream, Jamie, you dream to make it to the top of the T-ball league. I mean, sorry, I just couldn't help it. This stuff writes itself, really. It was just my pen. 
I have to have him preach a long time from now, so he'll forget all this, but... But seriously, if you dream about something, you dream of winning the final game, of being the MVP. You dream of being the best player, right? You don't dream of being okay. When you have dreams, you dream of like, you have these lofty aspirations. And I'm not a sports guy, but I dream of playing the guitar. And I went for one guitar lesson. And the guy's like, so what do you want to do? I was like, I want to be Eric Clapton. (laughs) Isn't that why anybody would play guitar? Right? I want to be Jeff Beck or or Jimi Hendrix or Jerry Garcia. I want to be one of the best. And when we imagine and we daydream, we're actually there, but we're not. It's your imagination. And we tend to do this with our Christian lives. Are we honest about our walks, about where we really are? Because there's nothing more discouraging to a new Christian than to hear some you know, person that's been a Christian for all this long talk about all the, the great things they've done and blah, blah, blah. Are we imagining these things or are they real to us? Because it seems to me that maturity brings humility. Why are we saying that? Why are we saying these things? Do we think it makes us better Christians? Do you think it helps people around you? It makes you crazy and discourages them. So the issue for Paul here is a call to resolute, obvious commitment to the basics. Beg uses this example of how much of an encouragement it must have been for verse 12 to come out of the reading of this letter. He says this, he says, Imagine a couple, Aaron and Sarah Levi at 247 Bridge Street in Philippi. They're zealous for God. They're interested in being passionate about things. They're open to anybody who can tell them how they can really go for it. And so Mr. Levi leaves Sarah, his wife, behind to go and attend a meeting. It's been advertised as taking place in such and such a street in a certain person's house who's known to be a very perfect person. And so he is, in the term of the Philippians, a Judaizer. And he's offering to people, indeed he's demanding of people, the notion that if they truly love Christ, then they will experience a dimension of living which actually introduces them in the present to which the apostle is saying is a prospect along the journey and reaches its fulfillment in heaven. But these individuals in their meeting gather the crowd and they tell them that if they will add to Christ, that if they will add to what they know, all these other things, that they may be actually made perfect in this life. So Mr. Levi goes and he attends and he comes back and he tells his wife, he says, they both sit and they look at one another across the kitchen table and he says, you know, it seems to me absolutely hopeless. He says, I understand the zeal. I understand what the the fellow's going on and on about, but I can't possibly see how it can be done. And so they're discouraged. Some of you may have had that experience with church. And so within a matter of days, they're in the congregation of Philippi, and the letter comes from Paul. And it begins, this is from Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ to all the saints. In Christ Jesus at Philippi. And Mr. and Mr. Mr. and Mrs. Levi are sitting out there in the, in the benches and they're listening to it read. And as it proceeds, and it would have been read in one listening, and as they get to Philippians 3, 10 through 11, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the passion and the suffering and everything else. Mr. Levi nudges Mrs. Levi, his wife Sarah, and he says, here we go. He gives her this knowing glance. Here we go. It's the same thing I heard down the street. We're getting the same thing in here now. This guy's going to tell us. And Mrs. Levi says, shh, shh, I'm trying to listen. Be quiet a minute, would you? Listen to him. That ever happened to you? 
And he pins both his ears back. His verse 12 comes and verse 12 comes and he slides off his seat and lands on his bottom in the middle of the room. Because he hears what Paul has written down is not only his aspiration to know Christ in this way, passionately and progressively, but he sees immediately Paul has added, not that I have already obtained this or am already made perfect. I am not perfect, in fact, he says. Oh, Mr. Levi says, this is fantastic because if Paul's not perfect, then I don't know what these jokers are going on down about at that guy's house, but I'm not going to go there again. Because if there's anyone after all who would be perfect, it would be somebody who was a Hebrew of Hebrews, who had the background such as Paul's, somebody who was from the tribe of Benjamin, of the people of Israel, an eight-day, as far as circumcision goes, a Pharisee in relationship to zeal, persecuting the church, faultless in relationship to legalistic righteousness. And the same guy who had that mark in his life said, I have not already obtained this, or am I already perfect? Oh, wonderful, he must have said. This is great. Why? So he could be lazy, so he could sit back and go, see, this is fine. No. No, not, not because of that. Not to say, I don't have to worry about anything. Not at all. But so the truth of God's word could dawn upon his soul as such a way as to make sense of the Christian message. Listen, the man or woman of spiritual maturity is not so much aware of what they are, of what they have done, or they know, or have accomplished. Because it's all Christ. A mature saint is keenly aware of what they are not of where they know not. Most of our society is constantly urging us to be aware of what we are, what we have achieved, and what we have done, and our potential, our capacity, and we have those things in Christ. But maturity in Christian living has in its beginning an awareness of what I'm not. I am unworthy of God. I am unable to save myself. It's a sign of immaturity to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Maturity re rejects exaggerated claims. And the old fable of the tortoise and the hare, right? You remember the hare goes flying off. And the tortoise, you know what those things they look like, funny looking little heads sticking out in the front. And the hare's gone, right? He's a goner. In fact, he's so convinced that he's got the race won, he decides he'll sit down and rest and relax and fall asleep. And as the fellow with the dramatic start falls asleep, the little guy comes, same pace, slowly, 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 till eventually the tortoise in the winter is the, is the winner and the hare is nowhere to be found. Speaking as a tortoise, do you know what a pain in the neck it is to be surrounded by spiritual hares? He's telling everybody what they're doing, going on and on, leaping and bounding about. You say, I don't even know if I'm in this Christian life. I don't even know if I want to wear the uniform. I don't even know if I can stand up to the plate. But the wonderful wisdom of the Apostle Paul, he says, now listen, guys, let me just tell you here. Let me, let me tell you the things that are fundamental to me. And I'm going to summarize it in this way, and we're going to, we're going to break, and then we'll, we'll pick this up next week. But I'm going to summarize it. These are three things we're going to look at this week. Because this is how Paul summarizes the whole thing. He's called, he's kept, and he's pressing on. He's called and kept, and he's pressing on. It's only when you understand that you're called by God...
profoundly, radically called by God. And you say, well, I've never audibly heard his voice, but have you heard that still small voice? Because you have. You're here. He's called you. He's spoken to you. Maybe he's calling you out of a situation, but he's calling you, make no mistake. And maybe you're rejecting and maybe you're resisting, but have you heard the call of God? Because it begins with a call of God. And when you respond to that call in faith again and again, he keeps you. And it's only when you understand that you're called and you're kept that you're able to press on. And that should encourage all of us 